This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Brunwyn Milkins. mental workers and welcome back to the podcast. Today we are talking about being comfortable with making mistakes. If you hear the word mistake and you find yourself freeze up with anxiety, this is the episode for you. And here to join me is Niraja Shankar. Hi Niraja. Hi Ronwyn. Last time we had Niraja on the podcast, she was a provisional psychologist. She is now a registered psychologist. Yeah. Yay, I can't believe it's happened. <laughs> yeah, it's so fantastic. Congratulations, Niraja. So Niraja is now a registered psych and she's a PhD candidate as well. And she's going to help us unpack this topic of making mistakes. We're going to go through what counts as a mistake in therapy, why we're so afraid of mistakes, the mistakes that Niraja and I have made and how we've learned from those mistakes, plus a few other tidbits and takeaways, which I think are going to be really awesome. Yeah, I'm excited. I think this is a really important um, topic because it can invoke so much anxiety in all of us in making a mistake. So I'm really excited that I'm here for this. I am too. And as you're saying that, I was literally thinking today, I've been a bit stressed lately and I was like, I'm not sure I have the emotional capacity to talk about making mistakes. Like that's how much like mistakes evoke in me, even just thinking about them. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, when you say that, I was just kind of thinking we always focus more on our mistakes. Like I'm just thinking back to my supervision experiences um, from masters and I would always remember the mistakes to bring up in supervision, but I would never bring up like something I did really well. I think we're just so tuned to think about the mistakes and focus on that, that it can get really hard to talk about. Yes, I agree. It's, I wonder if that's a bias that we have to just like always focusing on our mistakes. And when we bring it to supervision, I almost feel like, I'm not sure if this is true. Like, I don't know why I assumed this, but maybe I'm like, the supervisor doesn't want to hear about my positive wins, but I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. And I also think like, you're learning a lot from mistakes, but it's okay to also celebrate your wins. And yeah. uh, I don't know why we're so focused on those mistakes. I don't know either. Let's talk about what counts as a mistake in therapy though. Like I think today I just want to narrow it in. We're not talking about ethical violations or or major, major mistakes, uh, professional misconduct. We're talking about mis- other mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. So mistakes that wouldn't result in a APRA uh, notification or anything like that, but do happen on a day-to-day basis and are absolutely okay to happen. Yeah. So I guess some types of mistakes might be you mishear a client and you repeat back to them the wrong the wrong thing. Uh, you might incorrectly state the wrong emotion that the client is feeling and they might feel upset. You might be 20 minutes late for a session and that results in a rupture that you then need to repair and that could be considered a mistake. So I guess our definition of a mistake is that anything that is co-agreed upon in the therapeutic relationship. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think anything that makes you kind of think, oh, should I have said that or should I have done that and has the potential to impact the client, not 
extremely negatively, but it has a potential for them to take away and go, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. It can also be things that just don't come out as intended. So some of the mistakes that I'm going to describe later are things that I hoped was going to work well. And then it elicited a response in the client that I was like, oh no, I wasn't expecting that. Okay. That's a mistake on my part that I made an assumption here and it wasn't executed in the way that I had hoped. Yeah, I guess sometimes we can make assumptions and say things to clients as well that we don't think is a mistake or problematic in any way, but the client's response can actually guide us and make us realize that, oh, okay, maybe I shouldn't have said that or that was the wrong way to assume. But at the end of the day, we are in a human industry. They're humans, we're humans. Assumptions and mistakes are bound to be made. It's more how we recover from them. Yeah, I think we would have to be robots to be, and even then, like, tangent, but this week I saw that the Microsoft AI bot was having some really mean conversations with users. So I was going to say we would have to be robots to be 100% good in communication, but not even robots are doing it perfectly. So I think it's just an ideal that cannot be reached. And I guess this is a perfect thing to talk about one of the thoughts I have about making mistakes, actually, because, you know, psychology as an area is quite competitive. You know, from the time we get into our undergrad, we're kind of told that we have to be the top of our class. We have to be the best to be able to get into honours, which is so competitive in itself to get into. And then once we're done with honours, you know, we're kind of told, well, if you don't have a first class honours or close to that, then you're not going to get into a master's program or what are you going to do for a provisional program? Like you're just always trained to have to be perfect. And when you're trained to have to be perfect, mistakes make you uncomfortable because in that sense, if you make a mistake, a high distinction could fall to a distinction that could then result in you not being able to get into honours and you're not going forward in that pathway. But I think once we get to practice, that training of being so perfect can actually be harmful to us because it is impossible for us to be perfect all the time. We are bound to have bad days. We are bound to have days where we are making the wrong assumption or we've said the wrong thing and it's okay. And I think something that took some time for me to adjust to was, you know, from day one of my master's program, as soon as I got in, our lecturers always started saying near enough is good enough and you need to get used to that because you have been trained to be perfect this whole time but actually perfection is really hard and may actually be too rigid in a therapy environment so it's but it is a hard thing to adjust to like something you've been used to for seven years of your life and then suddenly you're told no no near enough is good enough that can be really hard. So I get why mistakes are so difficult to come around. Yeah. So what we're saying is that widespread amongst psychologists, we reckon we don't like mistakes as a group. We all experience that anxiety. And what we're saying is that it's kind of drilled into us through that striving for perfection to get into these very competitive courses. So I remember like when I was in undergrad and I was on the bus once and I remember this particular instance and I was looking at my assignment results and I was like, oh gosh, please get an 80, please get an 80. And I think I got about that, but I just remember the anxiety about this mark. Like if I got a 60, I would have probably cried. Yeah. I mean, I have had moments where I have cried over grades, which, you know, I 
my partner is a lawyer and he's looked at it and been like, what is, are you crying over this? And I'm like, I don't understand. Yeah, I'm right 80 on it. Do you feel better? <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it is something that I've, I've also cried over. You know, yeah. I'll that one. <laughs> yeah. I thought, I thought I wouldn't be like, it sounds ridiculous, but it sounds like I reckon it would be quite a common phenomenon amongst us. And then when we get to being a psychologist, we can recognize that this perfectionistic striving, it's not resulting in what we want to see in the therapeutic relationship. And I would say as well that a very common thing that happens with early career psychs is that we try to focus on what we're going to say to the client as we're speaking to the client. And so we're trying to be perfect there. But what we find is that if you do that, you miss out on what the client is saying to you and also micro expressions and body language. So you have to forget about what you were going to say and just listen to them. And that was probably the first major hurdle that I had in being like it's good enough, you have to let go of this perfectionistic striving. Exactly what I was going to say. Oh, wow. um, That was what I had to get used to as well. I guess one of the first mistakes I made was I was so focused on what I was going to say that I actually misinterpreted what the client had said because I didn't listen to them fully and I wasn't completely present in the room with them. I was caught up in my thoughts of, okay, this is what we started with. This is what I need to say. This is what I need to say. The client needs to finish so I can say it. Otherwise, I'm going to lose the segue of saying this, you know, perfect question. Yeah. Ended up being imperfect because it didn't fit the scenario at all. But I guess it's also about acknowledging that it didn't fit the scenario and being real with the client and going, yeah, okay, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. Let's restart. Or, you know, acknowledging that that was a mistake. So that can be really tricky, Niraja, to say to a client, look, I made a mistake. I get the sense that we're all really scared about that as well. But so maybe we can talk about some of the benefits of making mistakes in therapy. One of the things I quickly learned is that sometimes clients come in with this perceptions that psychologists are perfect and they can't make a mistake and they can do no harm but it can also then impact how comfortable they are in being vulnerable with us and you know going to a psychologist is quite a vulnerable experience because you're going there to get help for things that may be happening or being proactive in managing your mental health and that requires you to talk about some difficult heavy stuff and I guess something I learned very quickly is when I acknowledged that I had made a mistake it in a way humanized me to the client and it made them feel comfortable that, oh, she was vulnerable with me in admitting that it was not okay to say that or she misinterpreted what she had said. And so they felt more comfortable being vulnerable with me because they thought I was real, you know? Yeah, instead of being like, yeah, I don't make mistakes. That, that's a perfect way to alienate yourself from someone else, really. Absolutely. It is hard to admit you've made a mistake. No one wants to admit they've made a mistake. But seeing that the client can feel more comfortable from that is a real benefit of, I guess, recovering from the mistake as well. Yeah, it can be quite good because clients, sometimes they don't have relational models in their life where other people have taken responsibility for mistakes. Sometimes clients have people in their lives who persistently 
uh, don't take responsibility or blame them for mistakes. And so having somebody in front of them show them a mature response, I take responsibility, I acknowledge I'm not perfect, I'm sorry it had that influence on you, let's see how we can make this better, can be a hugely correcting experience for that person. And I think in that sense, from a relational perspective as well, um, in what you were saying, Bronwyn, you know, we have ruptures in our relationships with friends, with romantic partners, with families, and there can be times where people have not experienced repairs in those relationships as well. And so sometimes they can feel if a relationship is ruptured, that's it, that friendship is no longer viable, or I can't talk to this person again. But it can also be a model for them to realize that, hey, there was a rupture in this relationship, but it repaired. It's kind of like, um, exposure therapy where you're kind of habituating to the fact that yeah there can be ruptures in relationships but there can also be repairs it doesn't mean that that relationship relationship is done like you can't go back there yeah and I certainly don't want that for my clients either I really encourage them to talk to me rather than ghost me I'll explicitly say that like please don't ghost me let's talk about it we can work this out because a lot of clients they'll have that experience of They can't bring up feedback, otherwise the other person will get angry, yell at them, blame them, gaslight them. And they need to know that that could be a potentially different experience. And so we need to be able to provide that safe space so they can have this exposure activity essentially. Something I try to do or I do do in every session, no matter whether it's my first session with a client or my 10th session with the client, but every session I will say I want to improve for you. So Mm. I need feedback, whether that's positive or negative. At the end of the session, I was always tell them, you don't have to tell me right now if this session, there was something that didn't sit right with you. But I want you to know that at any point during this, I would like you to tell me because if I don't know when I've upset you or done something wrong, I can't improve for you. Um, So I really, I, I do explicitly say in every session at the end that, you know, feedback is actually encouraged, positive or negative. I would like to know what you think. Um, And that can be really helpful because you're then opening up the space for clients to go, okay, I can tell her that she's made a mistake rather than them having to pick up that courage to go, okay, maybe she doesn't want to hear that she's made a mistake, but now I have to tell her that she's made a mistake and I'm awkward about this. Um, Can be really helpful. It can also be helpful I know for me to take the feedback because in a way I've invited it. And so when I do get constructive criticism or get pointed out where I've made a mistake, I'm able to take it because I've said, no, no, this is something I invited them to do. It's not coming out of the blue. Um, so that that's one way I guess I manage when I make mistakes or I get comfortable with making mistakes. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that it's, It's empowering for clients to know that they can bring up feedback with their clinician, particularly I'd imagine for people who are people pleasers or just are really scared of giving feedback. It can be quite an empowering moment and give them the sense that they're in control of the therapy as well. Like they're not just a passive recipient engaging in this, they're actually active. And I really like what you said there about the mindset that approaches making mistakes. It sounds like you see this very much as a growth opportunity. I think mistakes are a growth opportunity, right? You're not, I guess, no one's sitting there being like, oh, I want, I want to make a mistake. It just happens and you get to learn from that, which is really cool. 
Another benefit I wanted to touch on with making mistakes is this idea that therapy is constantly changing and evolving. So for me, I usually change my mind a lot with what happens in therapy as I gather more information from the client. So I'll go down one track and then I'll be like, oh, this isn't quite working out for you as we had hoped, or I've gotten more information from you on this. I've changed my formulation. What do you think about doing this? And it's not a mistake, but it is changing mind and it is not being like I'm perfect therapist know exactly what to do because therapy is always evolving so I find that incredibly helpful to set that up to the client in sessions that yeah I do change my mind I do collaborate with you as I have information coming at me and so that just makes it really helpful. I think that's a great point and I think it also gives the client an understanding that you know something they came in with originally may actually change in three or four weeks time and actually something else might be bigger for them to discuss. And that obviously needs a change in formulation and change in treatment plan from our side. Um, And so it can be really helpful to be able to go, it's okay, like we can talk about different things and we can change the way we're approaching this. Yes, I really like not being a perfect human in therapy. I find it very beneficial, actually. Even in sessions, sometimes I'll say to clients, look, just thinking out loud here for a sec, tell me what you think, or oh, I'm thinking of doing this, and then we'll do it for five minutes and be like, nah, 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 like not, not gelling with how that's working out for you. What if we tried this? And so I am generally pretty collaborative with my clients, and I find that not being a perfect human really allows for that. And I think something else that came to my mind, Bronwyn, when you were giving those examples is sometimes when I'm having a tough day or I'm really tired, I do go into a session and I go, hey, I may say the wrong thing today because I've had a really long day and this is happening. And I think that also helps the client to go, yeah, I've had a really long day too. Like sometimes therapy after a long day for a client can be a lot. Um, And so it can even allow for that space for them to understand that you're not perfect. You have tough days too. And that's okay. It's okay to have those tough days, but we're both here. That's the most important thing. Yeah. I do think it helps to know that clients can tolerate more imperfection than perhaps we give them credit for as well. Sometimes we think we have to be this perfect therapist all the time and that clients won't be able to tolerate any imperfection. But I think the way I approach mistakes nowadays is that I'm like, look, Clients have more tolerance for me being human than I think they do. So one example is that when I was a provisional psychologist, I used to really struggle with saying the right questions, right in air quotations. Like, so I'd be doing group therapy and I'd be trying to get out the question that I wanted to, but it'd be too complex. I'd ask like three questions in one question. So I'd be like, what do you think about this and this and this? And I'm like, no, I just need to say one question. So the way that I ended up resolving that was saying my complex set of questions and then saying, that was too complex. Let me try again. And then I would get the one question out and the clients were very tolerating of this. I never had any negative feedback from it or they didn't look upset. They could see that I was trying to communicate in a helpful way and they were allowing me to do that. Yeah, that's actually really beautiful. And I think it's a great reminder. This is a little bit of a tangent from what you've said, but it's something I've reflected on recently, you know, as you mentioned earlier on in the episode, I've gone from provisional psychologist to registered psychologist now. And when I did provisional, I did it through my master's program. So no one was paying for my services in that same way. Like I wasn't getting paid to do any of my placements. 
Um, but now suddenly I'm going into the out into the real world where people are paying for talking to me or seeing me. And in a way that puts a lot of pressure. Like it makes me really nervous to go, oh my God, this person is paying for me, paying to speak with me. And that can put a lot of pressure on us and it can put a lot of pressure on us to be perfect because you're suddenly like, oh God, what I should say the right thing that it needs to be value for their time and their money. And there's so much going into this for them. But for me, it's more important to give them a real experience. And I know for myself that if I'm caught up in being perfect, I'm not being present. So I'm not giving them an experience that is going to be helpful for them. Yeah, again, I think that points to the consequences of trying to be perfect and trying not to make mistakes is that we do miss that attunement with our clients at times and we're not present. So we can't pick up on everything that's in the room. And I think clients, they want that real human interaction. They want to be helped. They want treatment for their concerns, but they also want a real human. Being there for them, being present with them in the room is I guess the best thing you can do because similar to what we were talking about before around, you know, ruptures and repairs and modeling that relationship, they, this is also modeling to them that people can actively listen. Like how many times have we gone home and tried to talk to a family member and they've been cutting vegetables while you've been talking to them and you haven't had their full attention. And we are one space where we can give that full attention, which can also be really corrective. And it it is really important to give them that full active attention. So when we think about it, they're not paying us to have this robot in front of them. They're paying us to use our knowledge, expertise and services in a way that benefits them. And we know that we can benefit them the most if we have this strong relational component. And I think there's plenty of research out there. And now I might be misquoting the statistic because it has been a while since I've heard it. But I've, I remember in my training, I was told, you know, 60 or 70% yeah. of the change for someone in therapy comes from the therapeutic alliance. It does not come from the modality that you use or how you ask or present the modality. It is about that relationship and mistakes are a really important part of that relationship. They are. Yeah, I completely agree. And yeah, I believe it's 60, 70%. Maybe even 80. No, I think I'm exaggerating that. I think it's like 60, 70. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. There's, there's a huge proportion of the effect of change in therapy is due to the alliance. So it really reflects that having a good mindset to making mistakes, seeing it as a growth opportunity can be really beneficial, not only to ourselves, but to our clients. Like another negative to trying to be perfect is that it's exhausting and I've already got enough risk of burnout in us. So why add another thing, right? Exactly. Like I say to people when they ask about my job, you know, I say, well, people aren't coming to us because they're happy. Like, yeah, that, and that's taking on enough already. Like, imagine if you're trying to be perfect in that too. That's so much. Mm. So Niraja, I wanted to turn to maybe some practical things we can help ourselves with. Like if we make a mistake, how can we repair or what you think can help us respond to mistakes better? Yeah, of course. Um, How would you like to go about this? (laughs) So one of the things that I wanted to get across to listeners was that one thing that I found really helpful is deliberate practice. I haven't talked about this much on the podcast, but deliberate practice is pretty much the idea that 
psychotherapy and learning it is a skill like any other. You want to learn how to play the piano. You need to play the pieces in a particular way. You don't just try play the whole piece. You break it down bar by bar. You get fluency in those bars. You do phrases. You listen to the piece of music. You try and emulate that. It's a repetitive process that you go back and over again and you give your full attention to. I believe therapy is also like that. And a lot of smart people also believe that. So I guess, I guess I'm just taking that belief, but as well, like when I was um, in my undergrad, I had to do a calculus unit and I was doing exercises every day, like just calculus exercises. It was incredibly boring, but beneficial. And I ended up getting a distinction for the unit. So I was like, heck yes. And this is somebody (laughs) who didn't do maths in high school. Um, So I was very pleased with myself. And I noticed that when I use deliberate practice to improve my therapy skills, it reduces my anxiety massively. So the way that I do that is that I might practice using empathetic statements. And so I'll be like, when you feel, when X happens, you feel Y. And I'll try and do that in session, but also outside of session. And this is where it comes up to one of our things, the love-hate relationship with role players, because I love them and I hate them and they're really good, but also bad. What's your perspective? Um, So firstly, congratulations, because calculus is murderous from what it's I've heard. It's so murderous. <laughs> so that that is a huge achievement. And in terms of role plays, you're absolutely right. You know, I myself have a love-hate relationship with them. I think when you're doing them for assessments and when you've been given this specific case study that you have to go to and you're being assessed on everything you're saying, it can feel really awkward because again, you're going into that perfection, I guess. You want to be giving that perfect role play. But actually saying things out loud can be really helpful to hear it to yourself to go, okay, this is how this question is coming across. or this is how the statement is coming across. And I can't tell you how much I used to avoid role plays, Bronwyn, after my experiences of doing them for assessments and for uni. But once I started my placements, you know, I had a friend of mine from masters and we used to role play with each other on certain client presentations we've got. And it was so helpful because you not only hear yourself doing it, you also get feedback from Mm, the other side. The feedback is so helpful. Yeah. How it's sitting for like for my friend as a client, how, how did it sit with her when I asked her that question or when I made that statement? And so that feedback can be really helpful as well. And it can help us build our skills. It can also help us build our confidence because when we're going into the therapy session, it's not the first time we're doing that particular thing. We've already practiced with it in a role play with someone else. Exactly. When I've read books on deliberate practice, they liken the therapy space to a performance. So not that it is a performance, but if you think of playing the piano, it's like if you're playing in front of other people with the piece, that is a performance. Likewise, Therapy is also the performance and outside of that, we need to practice. You can't get better at playing the piano if you don't play the piano. Likewise, it's hard to get better at psychotherapy if you don't practice those interpersonal relationship skills. And um, not that I'm advocating for this, and I think we all need time off from being a psychologist, but I do find that sometimes when I am playing around with an empathetic statement or I'm playing around with, you know, one of those minimal encourages or reflecting back feeling or meaning. I sometimes like to use it in my day-to-day life um, to see how it's perceived by 
people around me in a conversation because that can be really helpful as well in like practicing how it's coming across. So definitely clock off. Don't be a psychologist <laughs> all the time. But it can be helpful to kind of have that practice to think about that. Oh, this is a new thing I want to play with. Yeah. How it goes. No, it's a great idea. I just can't do it seamlessly. Like every time I've tried to do that, like somebody in my family calls me out and they're like, you're doing that psychology stuff, aren't you? And I'm like, no. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but if you can do it seamlessly, respect. Yeah. I mean, I think one of my favorite ones is that sounds so tough. Yeah. Like, really bringing that into my vocab Mm. and so when I had a friend or you know my brother telling me something hard was going on I was still sort of playing around with them going "Mm, that that sounds so tough just to see how it came across how I felt saying it firstly because it's really important about how we feel saying something as well yeah no absolutely that's a really good idea and I really like that, trying to implement it in your day-to-day life. As well, people, if you've got a supervisor, you can also ask them to do role plays with you. And also if you've got peers, you can ask them to do role plays with you. You can also practice on your own and you can do some of that study by yourself. I do a lot of that. I try and practice on my own or do study. Uh, Another thing that I've had to do is I'm doing schema therapy accreditation and I had to video a few of my sessions and then my supervisor watched them, which was incredibly anxiety provoking. Um, But it was massively helpful to receive her good feedback and the things that I can improve. And I thought that I would have lots of things to improve, like in typical negative fashion, but I only had a few things and they were things that I could tangibly work on. So I found that hugely helpful. So if listeners, you want to have a try of videoing your sessions, then I highly recommend it and like addressing the anxiety that goes along with that. Absolutely. And I actually want to second that because as part of my training within the internal clinic, all of our sessions were recorded so supervisors could watch them before a supervision session or if we had specific questions then they could refer back to them and I can tell you that I avoided watching re-watching my sessions like the plague I was just I I don't like hearing my voice like that so I'm like I don't want to watch this I don't want to see this um but after a while I actually dropped my walls down a little bit and I was like you know what maybe I should and it is helpful because you get to see that you actually didn't sound as stupid as you thought you sounded or as awkward or uncomfortable as it felt for you in the moment. But you can also kind of pick up on certain body language things of when you have said something, you pick up on, oh, the client flinched in this way. So maybe this is something I need to work on or communicate differently. And you do pick up a lot of that feedback from just watching yourself. So definitely second that recording suggestion. And I agree with that. So one of the things that happened with one of my recordings is that I was trying to get the session set up. So I was being quite perky at the start of the session. And then my supervisor noticed that I lost attunement with the client. And so they turned into a a kind of sad tone of voice and I completely missed it. And I was just like, let's get going and like happy self. And so that was something that I took away as, okay, I need to make sure that I continue to remain attuned to the client, even though. I'm trying to do something here don't forget the client sitting in front of me a great mistake to learn from as well sometimes we don't match our tone and that's okay um you know it's I think we look at mistakes and we can look at it as learning for that 
specific client, but it's also about learning more generally about, okay, this is how I can pick up on tone and this is where I may have done it differently before. Um, So I think a great example. Yeah, when I think of it like that, like I notice in myself that I don't feel any negative emotions like when I talk about it like that and I don't like making mistakes. So when I look at it as like a growth opportunity and like with curiosity and interest, I'm like, huh, isn't that interesting? Oh, I did do that. Wow. What can I do differently next time? I, I feel really fine about it. And so I don't know how we can adopt that in listeners, but I think it's just a practice thing. I think I had to practice it. What do you think? I think I had to practice it. And I also had to you know, think about it in the sense that I'm taking curiosity and non-judgment yeah. to the client. Why can't I afford that same level of curiosity and not judgment to myself? It's it's a great practice. You're trying to take it to the client. It's great to practice on yourself as well. Um, and I think that was something my uh, one of my supervisors at my placements um, last semester really beautifully put where she was just like, be curious, be curious with the client, but be curious within yourself. Um, and this is not just for mistakes, but did you say something? Did that bring something up for you? Or this was in a group therapy environment. Did you present a piece of content for the group and it just brought something in within yourself that you felt a bit ugh, or, you know, some emotion came up for you? Be curious about where that comes from. And I think that curiosity really helps. And once you gave me that feedback, I was able to go back there and kind of go, okay, let's, think about this. And, you know, I would say something maybe too wordy and I would always say, Hey, does that make sense to everyone? And, you know, being curious with how that came across to the person as well. So yeah, I think that was a, again, a very wordy way of saying what I wanted to say, but afford ourselves that curiosity and non-judgment as well. Yeah, no, I, I think it was a wonderful way of saying it because it really points to the role of self-compassion in all of this. So self-compassion is self-kindness, recognizing common humanity and that mindfulness element of taking a non-judgmental curious stance. And I really like how you said, like, if we can provide that to clients, why can't we provide it to ourselves? Sometimes when I'm trying to argue or debate with myself, I'm like, what makes you so special? that you can't be kind to yourself. And then I'm like, I'm not special. And then I'll be like, well, you have to be kind to yourself. Um, <laughs> so, so you can like argue your way into it. But it's so helpful when you can let down those walls and allow yourself to be kind to yourself because it really just creates more, I guess, more growth in yourself as a therapist. Absolutely. Um, it, it, it's so important, that self-compassion. Um, and we're compassionate people for wanting to do what we do every yeah. day. So let, let's show that compassion to ourselves as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, <laughs> um, Niraja, is there anything that we haven't given a voice to on the podcast yet? I guess some like examples of mistakes we've maybe Ooh. made and we've learned from. Let's do that. I think we, we were... We were saying like a few things, but I'll give, I'll give listeners a specific example. Is that all right if I go first? Yeah, of course. I'll do this one. I've got a few written down in front of me, so I'm just selecting which one I want to tell. Um, when I worked at a private hospital, there was group therapy and then there was also, I guess, integration, playing games, so activity, respite activities. And I was doing one of these groups with patients where we play games and we socialise through that. So it's essentially relaxation, but also getting them active. So it's a key component of treatment for depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And 
once I was playing a game with a patient and the game involved them guessing something. So I had the answer. They needed to guess the answer. And I didn't want to give it to them easily. I, I treat people like with the same respect. So it's like if we're playing chess, I'm not going to let them win the chess. I'm going to treat them with respect and try and do my best. Um, that said, I'm not a world-class chess player. So they have an equal opportunity to beat me. So it was one of these games and I was continuing to allow the client to guess. So they hadn't gotten the right answer after a few tries. It's worth noting that the client was seated around by like maybe three or four other people. And Mm -hmm. what happened is that after they were like, is it this? And I was like, no, is it this? No. And then I gave them a hint and then they got angry at me. So they snapped and they're like, like, tell me the right answer sort of thing. And I was shocked. And I think I, I think I responded with the right answer. I think I was consumed by shock and I didn't really know how to respond. So I can't even remember how I responded. But the takeaway from that was when I stepped back from it, I realized that the client was experiencing embarrassment and that potentially because of the way I formulated them, potentially humiliation as well. And so that's why they responded with that anger. Yeah. So it helped me to realize that, okay, like doing that for this particular person wasn't the necessarily the best approach. And in the future, it helped me to be mindful of not invoking that sense of humiliation in them. So it was a really great learning experience that came from a pretty shocking small moment. Yeah. Yeah. No, it sounded like a lot of growth was taken away from yeah. that Yeah. Um, and it was, I guess, just expanding upon that as well. It was really helpful to talk about it with a supervisor and just being like, hey, what's our formulation of this person? How can we conceptualize this behavior um, so that we can help them more in the future? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. No, that sounds like there was a big learning for you and um you know, making that mistake was actually important to make that learning as well. Yeah, it was. It was really important. So definitely part of like my growth experiences. Won't forget that one. And that was like a few years ago now. Yeah. I mean, when you were talking about your group therapy experience there, I had one that came up for me as well in terms of the mistake I made. And this was um, during one of my placements um, as part of my master's degree, I was also in a private hospital, which was focused on providing group therapy for um, inpatients. And um, it was towards the end of my placement and my supervisor had requested me. So they had a manual that they followed, but my supervisor had said, hey, you know what? You've been doing this for a while. You've got the skills. I would like you to plan a session outside of the manual and come with something to present to the group. Scary. It was terrifying. (laughs) And I was, we were training in ACT at the time at, in our coursework as well. So there was something about, I think it was around um, cognitive diffusion and seeing the thought as separate to us rather than fused with us. And I planned a session around that and I walked it through my supervisor. She was happy with what I'd planned. I was feeling pretty good about what I'd planned. But what I didn't think about was how the clients were feeling. And I think there was a lot happening for them at that time. A lot of them had trauma backgrounds and um, there were a few triggers that had been going on for the last few days and they were all very fused with their thoughts at the time. And so I went into this group therapy session. My supervisor came in with me because she said she wanted to see me present this, um, present this content that I had come up with. And I was doing it and I felt 
this sense of heaviness within Mm. me. Mm. But I was sort of like, no, I'm going to keep going. This is what I've planned. So I'm going to keep pushing myself. And it was a challenging group. Like some of the people in there were quite challenging characters to deal with as well. And I just kept pushing it. And at one point, the group members snapped because it was not what they needed to Mm. hear. And as a group, one person snapped and it kind of went through the group of the eight or 10 of them that were in the room at the time. And it was very confronting because suddenly you as a therapist feel like you have triggered all these people without meaning to trigger them. And my supervisor was in the room. She sort of realized that was happening. So she stepped in and kind of diffused the situation and, you know, we finished the group and they left. And we were reflecting on that and we sort of reflected on the fact that I felt this sense of heaviness maybe because I'd planned the content myself or it was one of my first time presenting content that I had planned. I wanted to push through with the plan and disregard that feeling that I was feeling. Um, But I think I think reflecting on that heaviness, my supervisor was able to go, hey, you picked up on the heaviness. That was not an issue. And just remember, it's okay to step back and go, hey, maybe this is not what we need to hear right now. Maybe this group is not helpful. How about we do some mindfulness movement or something else that's a bit lighter for the group? And I think that was a really important lesson for me in listening to my instincts um, because sometimes when we're going through a manualized approach or something, we might feel like, oh, I have to stick to the manual. I have to stick to the instructions that I've been given or I have to stick to the content when actually your gut is pretty right in telling you, hey, maybe you don't need to do that today. Maybe you need to do something else. And that was a huge learning to learn when I am feeling that way. Chances are the client is as well. So it's okay to step back and check in. And if the client's not feeling that way, keep going. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And thank you so much for sharing that. It's a wonderful moment of vulnerability to share with listeners. I really appreciate it. And I love how that's a lesson you've taken away because I think listening to our emotions in the therapeutic space is so important. You notice the heaviness and unless something had happened to you that morning or maybe there was something weighing on your mind, it's really good to get curious and be like, what is this heavy feeling? Where is it coming from? Is it from me or am I picking up something in the room? Maybe there were body gestures or people were saying things in a particular tone that indicated that there was this heaviness. And it sounds like you tried to persist with going through with the group, but the lesson is that we need to be adaptable and that can actually be really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that day with the way the the clients were feeling, that kind of moment where my supervisor had stepped in and gone, hey, we're not okay today, was actually more helpful for them than persisting with this group and kind of forcing them to go through group content on a pretty tough day itself. Yeah, amazing. I'm so glad that both of us have been able to grow from these experiences and really integrate it. Like I would say that my experience is, is a key component of helping me develop as a professional. How do you see your experience as, I guess, helping you? Absolutely helps me um, in my profession, not only in group therapy, but also in individual therapy and like just in a much broader sense, you know, that listening to yourself, listening to your gut instincts is really powerful and really important. 
Mm. And imagine if we took the opposite approach and we just tried to strive as hard as we can to never make these mistakes. I think there's some research which shows that when we're overconfident in ourselves, that's when we can miss out on therapeutic ruptures and then we might see an increase in dropout. So listeners, it's more effective to be able to listen to yourself, allow yourself to make those inevitable mistakes or missteps and then reflect on them and see how you can grow. Another, I guess, strength in the mistake that I just presented was the fact that my supervisor was there. Yeah. And when I made that mistake, I felt horrible. I felt, you know, this could be really impacting whether I pass my placement or not. But actually it wasn't, you know, my supervisor kind of stepped away and said, hey, you picked up on the fact that the group wasn't feeling all right. Yeah. Just decided to go the different route to maybe what you should have done. Yeah. But this is how you learn. And it's it's important to reflect on the fact that you picked up that it was not okay. And that is the most important thing. Mm. She was sort of saying, you know, I would have been more concerned if you didn't pick up on the heaviness, if you didn't see that there was a dynamic going on in the group that wasn't working. Um, and so in that sense, it was really empowering to hear that something that I in my mind was like this is the be all or end all like this could mean I don't pass my placement was actually seen as more a strength thing and was reflected back to me more as a strength thing and highlighted that we are our own harshest critics. I'm so glad you were able to have that response. And I think it highlights to listeners that if you're receiving a different response where your supervisor is like, and this means that you're a bad clinician and you'll never be a good psychologist, uh, right away. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's not helpful just because you make a mistake. Yeah, we need to see them as growth opportunities essentially. And I'm so glad you were able to have that compassionate feedback that also pointed out your strengths. That experience of receiving that compassionate feedback allowed me to be compassionate to myself. And I guess actually there were two learnings for me from that. It was obviously the listening to my gut instincts and how I'm feeling, but also that to be compassionate to myself because others can be compassionate to me in the face of this mistake I have made. Um, And again, that was kudos to my supervisor for responding Mm. the way that she did because she showed me that compassionate compassion and showed me it was okay to be that compassionate to myself too. Well, Niraja, I think this is a lovely space to wind up on. Are there any final thoughts that you wanted to share with listeners? I think we've touched on quite a lot of things. Yeah, we have. If there's one thing I would highlight is near enough is good enough. And if you need to write write that down all the time or keep that on a post-it note somewhere, do it because it was a great reminder for me that it's okay to make mistakes and you don't need to be perfect. I love that. Near enough is good enough. Thank you so much, Niraja, for coming on the podcast. I'm so glad that you could share some of your experiences and expertise with us. And thank you for sharing your vulnerable experiences as well. I think they'll be really valuable to listeners. Thank you to you too, Bronwyn. And I'm sure it wasn't easy reflecting on the mistakes as well. So thank you for inviting me and engaging in this conversation as well. My pleasure. Thanks listeners for listening. Have a good one and catch you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career psychologists. I could use some help getting the word out about this podcast. If you wouldn't mind, take a moment and give me a review on iTunes or Spotify or let someone know about the show. Thanks for listening. Have a good one and see you next time.